Hello, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Federalist Files with your adroit host, Michael D'Amato. I am going to be going through Federalist number 74 today. It is titled, The Command of the Military and Naval Forces and the Pardoning Power of the Executive. It's written by Alexander Hamilton, March 25th, 1788. Topics include defense of the provision, calling for the president to be the commander-in-chief. Okay, so this paper... Very short. It's probably actually the shortest one I've ever read. It's a couple paragraphs long. So this is going to be a pretty short podcast, probably around 15 minutes. So in this paper, uh, Hamilton, he outlines the President of the United States is to be the, and I quote, Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. Uh, end quote. So when he's talking about the militia specifically, the militia is to be called upon not by the president, but it's to be called upon by the legislative branch. Once it is called upon by the legislative branch in the federal government, uh, the two houses in the chamber, the House of Representatives as well as the Senate, once they call upon the militia, then they are under the power of the president or under the direction of the president. Same thing, of course, with the Army and the Navy as well. Uh, but it's only specifically the militia that they have to be called into an actual service by the uh, by the legislature. So Hamilton, he states that there will be a little, uh, very little contention to this provision, considering it draws similar comparisons to most state constitutions. So the concept, and I quote, of all the cares of, or concerns of government, the direction of war most peculiarly demands those qualities which distinguish the exercise of power by a single hand, end quote. So yes, you need to be able to move in and deal with adversity, have some sort of sense of dexterity, as well as energy as the executive, because you need that in your military, you need to be able to act swiftly, to act quickly in military operations, thus the reasoning for the provision being the exercise of this power by one single hand as in the president. So again, to repeat before written premises, the reason for the provision is a quick and effective response to uh, enemies protecting the country's national security. So that's obviously the reason for this. Uh, Hamilton next, he asserts, and I quote, The direction of war implies the direction of the common strength and the power of directing and employing the common strength forms a usual and essential part in the definition of the executive authority, end quote. So yes, the executive is to enforce the laws. Uh, they're also supposed to show uh, strength and stability in that one position. The reasoning for them being the commander-in-chief, the reasoning for them. There's a reason that our president, when he meets with Putin or he meets with wherever the president goes, he meets with whatever other world power, it's known that they are the commander-in-chief of the military and they control the military power when they go and meet with these individuals. If they went to meet and there were, there were figureheads from other countries and the figureheads went to go meet with whoever our uh, Senate leader was, they would just be taken a lot less seriously. There's a reason that there's only one person in the executive authority position, and it's mostly derived from a sense of having a national security, one person ahead of the military. So the president, and he goes on next, he states, and I quote, the president may require the opinion in writing of the principal officer in each of the executive departments upon any subject relating to the duties of their respective officers. This is uh, this I consider as a mere redundancy in the plan, as the right for which it provides would result of itself from the office. End quote. So he's just saying this right that they're providing for the president 
to oversee all operations in the executive branch. If he requests from somebody that works under him and is uh, subordinate to him, as everyone that is in the executive branch will be subordinate to the president, if he talks to somebody that's subordinate to him and says, hey, I want some paperwork for, for this or that uh, related to your duties, they have to provide that. It's, it's really just conferring the power and confirming the power that's already given to the uh, executive authority. So another power of the executive is to, and I quote, grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment, end quote. So this actually, he kind of goes into at the very end here, he starts to talk about treason a little bit as well, uh, which is actually covered under this power. And he actually gives a very good reason why it is covered under this power. But the only time that you cannot grant a pardon as in absolve somebody of, of some sort of uh, crime or wrongdoing, the only time you cannot do that is in the cases of impeachment because it would probably actually involve the president himself and it would be uh or somebody that is you know uh, uh nominated by the president if it was somebody that was in the in the supreme court so hamilton he reasons although the proposed constitution imposes the least threat to liberty every system is flawed in terms of the criminal code and this power is to be uh used in situations of quote unquote unfortunate guilt when justice would wear a countenance too sanguinary too sanguinary and cruel end quote so they use this word sanguinary when you say sanguine sanguine means optimistic it was the old school way of saying optimistic sanguinary uh the root word of sanguine is red and bloody so sanguinary it's pretty much any time that justice gives somebody a cruel and unusual punishment or there's some sort of unfortunate guilt-like situation where someone's wrongly uh, declared guilty, it gives the president the power to absolve them of that guilt and uh, give them the reprieves and the pardons of their offenses. I mean, therefore, if you, if you think about this late, I think it, I can't even remember her name. Uh, when when Trump went forward with the first step act, he pardoned that woman that was a drug dealer and they gave her like a life sentence for being a drug dealer. So he's pardoning people like that, uh, whether you like it or not, that's the power of the executive. So next he goes on to state, and I quote, Humanity and good policy conspire to dictate that the benign prerogative of pardoning should be as little as possible fettered or embarrassed. The criminal code of every country partakes so much of necessary severity that without an easy access to exceptions in favor of unfortunate guilt, justice would wear a countenance too sanguinary and cruel. As the sense of responsibility is always strongest in proportion as it is undivided. It may be inferred that a single man would be most ready to attend to the force of those motives, which might plead for a mitigation of the rigor of the law, and least apt to yield to considerations which were calculated to shelter a fit object of its vengeance. The very important part that he says in this quote is, as the sense of responsibility is always strongest in proportion as it is undivided. So the, the amount of responsibility that would be in the president to hold this power would be the highest amount of responsibility because you don't have multiple people. They're not spreading out this power. This is the power that they're laying in one individual person, one single hand. Thus, it will be used with prudence. He will use it in a uh, more calculated manner where he's not going to go outright outrageous because then he can lose his seat in office. He's going to use it in reasons that he views to be the most justified reasons uh, in using it. And if you had it laid out in the Senate or in the House of Representatives, it's harder to blame somebody. It's harder to vote those people out if they were to uh, distrust the, their, their oath of office.
Or, uh, yeah, so Hamilton, he wanted this power to be used sparingly and effectively in the hands of one man rather than a body of men because, and I quote, the reflection that the fate of a fellow creature dependent on his sole fiat would naturally inspire scrupulousness, another way to say caution or, or prudence, and caution, oh, which he goes on to say caution, the dread of being accused of weakness or connivance would beget equal circumspection, end quote. So yes, if, if you're viewed as weak or uh, feeble, this would this would give you the circumspection. So what you would get is if you're going ahead and you're pardoning all these people that were actually in prison for the right reasons, then you would look weak and you could lose your seat in office. In this case, laying the hands of one person, it lays all the responsibility in their hands and then it goes to show that they now have to be accountable to the constituency when they go forward with a pardon or some sort of a reprieve. So he goes on, he states next, and I quote, On the other hand, as men generally derive confidence from their numbers, they might often encourage each other in an act of obduracy and might be less sensible to the apprehension of suspicion or censure for an injudicious or affected clemency. On these accounts, one man appears to be more eligible dispenser of the mercy of government than a body of men. End quote. So yeah, you're going to have more, if you have more people uh, additionally in involved with this power, then you would have them say, well, you know, we're always right. We're not going to do anything about this. We're not going to grant any uh, reprieve or pardon in this case. Because then there's also additionally party politics that's involved in all of this stuff. And you're actually seeing that right now. You're seeing people on January 6th that are in solitary confinement and the government hasn't even given them a trial yet and they also set uh, no bail. So these people have been just losing their minds for being in the Capitol building. It, it is cruel and unusual punishment by definition. I think they're going to have a huge constitutional case over this. Uh, there's going to be civil offenses, civil su suits for sure that will probably go on for the next couple of years if I had to guess. So lastly, Hamilton gives the example of pardoning to uh, restore the tranquility of the Commonwealth in reference to pardoning insurgents and rebels in an attempt to make amends. And this is actually a very interesting point that you don't really think about. So Hamilton concludes that this power is better in the hands of the executive rather than the legislature, even in cases of treason, because the convening convening of the uh, legislature may cause, and I quote, the loss of a week, a day, an hour may sometimes be fatal, end quote. So yeah, the, the legislative branch was not going to meet as often as the president can just make one call and make a pardon or a reprieve. If you had to assemble the entire Congress, it could take, you know, weeks on end because they all had to uh, travel from, from one place to another, which I think at this time there wasn't Washington, D.C., so I think it was called Independence or it was called Constitutional Hall, I can't remember, in Philly, I think that's where they all were meeting the Congress at that time. I want to say it was called Independence Hall, where the Declaration of Independence was signed. But I may be wrong, and I think it actually still stands today uh, in Philadelphia. So, lastly, um, let's see if I have it here. Okay, so, so Hamilton next, he asserts that in a limited constitution, it would be an act of impropriety to take any step that may hold out on the prospect of impunity. So he's going to go on to explain these three quotes. This is going to be the very last paragraph. And I'll explain what his reasoning is for having uh, the president be able to pardon for, for treasonous reasons. So he, he states, and I quote, the expediency, of, the expediency of vesting the power of pardoning in the president has, if, it, if I mistake not, been only contested in relation to the crime of treason. 
This, it has been urged, ought to have depended upon the assent of one or both of the branches of the legislative body. I shall not deny that there are strong reasons to be assigned for requiring in this particular the concurrence of that body, or of a part of it, as treason is a crime leveled at the immediate being of the society when the laws have once ascertained the guilt of the offender, there seems a fitness in referring the expediency of an act of mercy towards him to the judgment of the legislature. End quote. So this is actually kind of interesting part. He says, you know, in cases, and I understand the argument, in cases of, of treason, I think maybe we should. It wouldn't be a terrible idea to get the legislature involved in this. Uh, I don't think the provision is that way now currently, from what I understand. Actually, I should probably, it would, it would make uh, more sense that I look it up real quick. So, okay, so I just so I just finished looking it up. I, I kind of knew this. And you know what? It actually brought up a great example that I didn't even think about, but I knew about. So I'm going to continue here. So the reason, so there is no treason. Treason does not have to go through the legislative branch. Some of his dissenters were saying maybe the treason specifically should also go with the legislative branch. He doesn't go forward with that. And there's reasons that he says that's not a good idea. So he states next, and I quote, It deserves particular attention that treason will often be connected with seditions which embrace a large proportion of the community, as lately happened in Massachusetts. He's talking about the Shays of Rebellion. Uh, in every sh such case, we might expect to see the representation of the people tainted with the same spirit which had given birth to the offense. And when parties were pretty equally matched, the secret sympathy of the friends and favorers of the condemned person availing itself of the good nature and weakness of others might frequently bestow impunity where the terror of an example was necessary, end quote. Okay, so he's stating you're going to have a situation politically where there's going to be people that are fighting, and, and especially when it comes to groups rather than one person, uh, some people are just going to go with the spirit of what the party says, and then they're going to be considered treasoners. And this is the reason for not having it go to the legislative authority, because then everything becomes political. The parties become political. It's kind of like how that dude Fugazi came out and he said that we should start looking into people. We should start arresting people that are in the Republican Party because they're the ones that are stoking, you know, the fire of, of white supremacy, racism, extremism in, in, on the right in this country. So we should go after the Republican Party. It's like that. It becomes so, so political that now... If they went forward with some sort of treason charge, charge, and the president said, you know what, that's no good, I'm going to pardon it, then the legislative branch would get involved in it and be party politics all over again, and it would just destroy the entire system. Uh, so then he goes on. So on the other hand, he, he states, and I quote, on the other hand, when the sedition has had proceeded from causes which had inflamed the resentments of the major party, they might often be found obstinate and inexorable. When policy demanded a con conduct of forbearance and clemency, but the principal argument for reposing the power of pardoning in this case to the chief magistrate is this: in sessions or see in seasons of insurrection or rebellion, there are often critical moments when a well-timed offer of pardon to the insurgents or rebels may restore the tranquility of the commonwealth, and which, if suffered to pass unimproved, it may never be possible afterwards to recall, end quote. So this is so significant in this paper, and he brings up a very good point. You can never amend a country, for example, uh, after the Civil War. I actually have two examples here. After the Civil War, if Lincoln went forward 
and decided to just prosecute everybody for treason and and he didn't pardon anyone uh, from the South, then how are you to make amends with your political opponents? And how are you to amend the country back together? And then there's another example that I didn't even think of. Uh, Richard Nixon with the Watergate scandal, right after he decided to step down because they were trying attempting to impeach him, I think they impeached him in the House and then it got to the Senate and by that time he already stepped down from his role. Gerald Ford took over. Gerald Ford, I'm pretty sure was a... Uh, then Gerald Ford went forward and he pardoned uh, Richard Nixon. I guess in an attempt to make amends as well. But I think Gerald Ford, I'm pretty sure he was a Republican, so he must have just been the... Uh, he must have at that time, yeah, he was appointed vice president by Richard Nixon. Nixon then resigned. He became the president automatically. Okay, so he uh, then he went and he pardoned Richard Nixon because if it weren't for that, then it, it would just be a disaster um, politically. But Gerald Ford was kind of in the same party, so I don't really count that as much. But the example of the Civil War is actually very important. They could have went after every single one of those people in the South, and they could have said that you're a treasoner against the country. Treason's kind of been used now. Treason's been a word that's been flung around politically in, in modern-day politics a lot, very often. Um, the Democrats call Republicans tre treasoners all the time. They called Trump treasoner. Uh, tre treason is literally like going to another country and saying, "We're I'm going to help you overthrow the United States and putting putting the political goals of another country ahead of the United States. It's, it's a very high crime, if, if you really think about it, against the country, against the Constitution, against the people. But the Democrats kind of just throw it around like it's nothing. Uh, but yeah, that's really it for this one. I greatly appreciate everybody uh, tuning in. And please check out Weekend Special. Check out the current event episodes. I've got a good Weekend Special coming up now. As always, I mean, I, I usually try to hit on some current event news that isn't being covered fully by the corporate media and yeah just check it out you know send it to your friends i usually come out with short clips as well on rumble if you want to send your friends short clips i'll always have all the references in the description below the video on rumble so it's good snippets you don't have to watch a full podcast that's an hour long or you don't even have to listen to it you can listen to it on podcast networks i pretty much have it everywhere i have it on spotify i have it on apple podcast uh what is it amazon music i have it everything's free folks uh there's no one behind me i'm doing this on my own under my own power i only really the constituency that i have is you the viewers the listeners and and that's it there's no foreign money out here there's there's no big bags behind me i do this pretty much for free i, I do not make really i made 170 dollars off of a couple of views on rumble and that's that's all i've made so far so I greatly appreciate everybody tuning in. Uh, please check out some of the current event stuff, and I will see you all this weekend. Thank you. It's true.